Well, this morning we're resuming our series on God, in particular, the triunity of God. So just to recap, just to recap, a couple weeks ago, we looked at a few basic things. We saw, first, that the Trinity can only be known by redemptive revelation that has come from Christ. You cannot just look at nature and reason your way to the Trinity. The second thing we saw was that this unveiling, this revelation, directs us back to the source and to the end of all things, namely to God in himself, God in his inner life, to what, borrowing a phrase from Fred Sanders, we call the happy land of the Trinity. And finally, we asserted that this being the case, this should produce in us a profound God-centeredness. And today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to contemplate anew, with new eyes, if you will, two things, really two glorious realities, which flow from the being of this God, which flow down or out of the happy land of the Trinity. Love and creation. Love and creation. Two big topics for one sermon, I know, but we're going to just say a few, a few things about them. Uh, first, then, love. So, we've spoken often here, right, often about the Trinity as an eternal communion of, among other things, love. And so I want to unpack this a little further today, and I want to start way back in the 4th century with Athanasius's famous and penetrating remark, which we did mention, I think, a couple weeks ago, Athanasius, 4th century church father, Alexandrian. He said, it is more pious to call God Father than it is to call him creator. Why would that be? Well, because God is essentially eternally before and above all worlds, Father. I believe in one God, and the first thing we say is, Father. Not creator, not ruler, not king, Father. I believe in one God, the Father. Now this is significant, maybe more than it appears at first. Just, just as an aside, this is a subtle thing. But if we refer almost exclusively to God as with terms like God or the Lord, and of course these are fine designations, Scripture uses them repeatedly. But if we don't think in some kind of like primitive, instinctive, basic way, like as etched into our spiritual DNA, if we don't think of God as Father, First and foremost, we will tend to some other metaphor being the dominant one we go to. And so we'll have an order and proportion problem right there. It will be found in our basic vocabulary of prayer. Without conceiving of God as your father, first and foremost, your piety will lack a warm paternal dimension. Now, we'll admit to be sure that the Lord is also our father, but this is not quite right. Because fatherhood is not an add-on 
in God. It's not a modifier of the one who is, say, first king or Lord. God is essentially father. And get this now. He was father when there was nothing to rule over or govern. When no lordship over the creation was even possible. So the one who is almighty is, according to the creed, the Father Almighty. And getting that order right is crucial. And thus, the revelation of this fatherly tenderness, this fatherly pity, it can be obscured. Or it can be seen to be competing with something like God's kingly power or something. If it is not our first instinct... And again, where this, where this will show up will be in the way we pray. If it is not our first instinct to call him Father, the Spirit is sent into your hearts and the Spirit cries out, not Creator. The Spirit is sent into your heart so that you cry out from the interior depths of your being, Abba, Father. God is primally Father. It is his proper name. It is the name of the first person of the Trinity. And thus throughout scripture, right, you have things like Israel being called his firstborn son. Or we're told that God disciplines his people as a man disciplines his son. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Psalm 103. And of course, culminating from the beginning of the Bible to the end in Jesus Christ, who repeatedly, in fact, exclusively as far as I know, calls God his Father. When Jesus addresses God, this is, I think, the only term he uses. So this very word, this reality of God as Father, already tilts the axis in our minds toward the love and the tenderness and the goodness and the generosity, the paternal beneficence of God. So Athanasius was profoundly right. God is eternally Father, and it is more pious, he said. He said it's actually more accurate to designate him by this name than to use other names. And when we grasp, then, the existence that God is eternally Father, you know what that means? That means there has always eternally been a son. There's no father without a son, and there's no son without a father. Unlike in human relationships, the father exists first and later begets a son. In this divine father-son relation, there's no sequence. There's no order. There's no priority in time implied. There was never a time when the father was not father. And there was never a time when the son was not son. Contrary, by the way, to Athanasius' opponents who insisted that we must say there was a time when he was not. See, they saw the metaphor of father and sonship, and they thought, well, one must come before the other then. But that is wrong. That's what, moder- that's what Jehovah's Witnesses affirm to today. So God is father, and it's of the nature of fathers to father, to beget, to give life, to give being. To pour out. And so from all eternity, with no beginning, ineffably, 
asexually, the father begets the son. No one has ever seen God, John tells us in the prologue to his gospel. No one has ever seen God. But the only begotten son who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So, when we use the word begotten here, we are referring not to human begetting, but to an eternal relationship of giving by the Father and receiving by the Son. We think of the Son, He is the radiance of the Father's glory, and that means from all eternity, the Son was shining forth from the Father's fullness. He shows us glory, John says, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It's a lot, I know. But all of this dense Trinitarian theology is packed for you into the creed we're going to confess later. This, none of this stuff is optional for any Christians. When we stand up and we confess the Nicene Creed, we use these words. That the Son is begotten of the Father before all worlds. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Every human son in here is begotten and made. The son is begotten, not made. Begotten of the father, notice, before all worlds. Always and eternally, father and son together. Right? If someone asked us, or they asked our children... What is the most important thing about Jesus? I'm going to guess north of 90% of us are going to say that he died for our sins. That's not right. The most important thing about Jesus is that he's the son of the father, begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. If he's not that, we don't care about his crucifixion under the Romans. This will show you just how focused we are on... It's not like we're focused on a bad thing. It's just that the pictures are not right. The proportion is not right on the screen. Try that with your kids for fun. What's the most important thing about Jesus is that he's the second person of the Holy Trinity. That's the most important thing. But there are two more things to consider here. I want to add two two more considerations. First... This begetting, this giving from the Father to the Son is not a one-time thing. We shouldn't think of it like that. Like way back in eternity, the Father begat the Son. And ever since then, things have been good. Maybe a little static and flat, but good. This begetting is ongoing because it's a relationship. It's a relational word. He's begotten from eternity, begotten before all worlds. So this begetting, this relationship points to this infinitely full, life-giving, receiving, giving and receiving of love between the Father and the Son. Again, here's another diagnostic question for you, your children, and your friends. This is how you can annoy people at parties. Here's another one. What is the very heart of the New Testament? Here's, I think, perhaps the best answer. The bond of love between the Father and the Son. The bond of love between the Father and the Son. 
I hope to show later in this series, Lord willing, that participating in the very bond of love between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit is what your salvation is. Like salvation is not some detachable thing. So in John 17, for example, which we read in the gospel lesson, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We are going to see the glory of God by sharing the bond of love between the Father and the Son. So the Father begets the Son in love, and to make explicit what I've been assuming to this point, the Son returns the love. This is a dynamic communion. Jesus says, I love the Father, and I do exactly what the Father has commanded me to do. So the Son does not beget, but he does receive, and he responds. And the word we use for this is the word filial, right? Filial is a word that just means having to do with sons or children. The Son responds in filial love, in filial joy, in filial delight toward the Father, and he does so. In and by and through the Spirit. The Spirit is the love of God or the vehicle of God's love. We heard that in Romans 5. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So here's a, here's a very convenient, I think, helpful way to think of the Spirit. The Spirit is the bond, of, the eternal bond of love between the Father and the Son. Augustine, for example describes the Spirit as the very bond of communion between the Father and the Son. Communion, fellowship, that is what the Spirit does. 2 Corinthians 13, right? The the communion of the Holy Spirit. The love of the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the communion of the Holy Spirit. So, you have the lover, the Father. You have the beloved, the Son. And you have the the communion-creating Spirit, who is the divine love itself, breathed out, shared between them. So from a Christian point of view, to kind of maybe bring this home, from the Christian point of view, to say God is love, and we all say that, we want to say that. Right? To say that then is to say God is this God. This triune God. When we say God is love, right, we are not asserting that God is loving, although he is. Nor are we asserting that God shows lots of love, though he does. We are claiming something much more wonderful than that. We are claiming that God as triune, as father and son in the bond of the spirit, simply is love. Put differently, no trinity, no love. It's an audacious claim in the, in the Christian tradition. It's not original with us. Why would we make this claim, no trinity, no love? Because love requires another. Right? The lover needs a beloved to love. Love cannot exist then. Love cannot exist in some solitary, one-personed deity. Happiness consists in love in society, in a community of persons. And this is why the God of deism, or some general theism, cannot love in this sense. Monotheism itself, I believe in God, 
in general, is insufficient to ground the richness of love in the Trinitarian vision. At the very least, right, at the very least, the God of, say, Benjamin Franklin. I don't know how this happens. You know, it's July 4th weekend, and I'm going to criticize some of the founding fathers. (laughs) But the God of Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, the God of the American civil religion, at the very least, such a being would need to create in order to love. They would need something to lavish their love on. Otherwise, that God would be a narcissist. If a single person God is love, then we could call that single person God a narcissist. Such a God can't be love in this sense. But in the biblical God, the Father loves the Son, the other. In the communion, the fellowship bond of the Spirit, and the Son returns that same love in the same Spirit. And we have an infinite, dynamic communion of light and love, which is not narcissistic. It's one of sheer delight and self-giving, of distinct persons so intimate and one that they can be spoken of as being inside one another. The triune God, this God, John says in his first epistle, is love. So what we have here then is this vast ocean of blessed, serene, perfect, replete, personal, intrapersonal love. This is how we should expand our cognitive faculties to think of God. It, then, note, it is this love which is revealed in Jesus Christ. Often when we talk about this, right, we, it sounds like we're saying the sending of Jesus shows that God is loving. Well, sure, yeah, but that's a little flat. That's a little tepid. That's a little two-dimensional. In this, the love of God was made manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Notice notice this, the Trinitarian shape of the very revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So John says that he wrote his gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, we might have life in his name. Jesus is the Christ, meaning the one anointed with the fullness of the Spirit. And he is the Son of God, the God who is his Father. Right? You know what Jesus is? His name is shorthand for the whole Holy Trinity. When we say Jesus is the Christ, we're confessing the Trinity. He cracks the Trinity open for us. So it's the love of the Trinity, not love in general, not just the love of Jesus or merely the love of the Father, but the Trinitarian richness of love that is revealed in Jesus Christ. It won't do here to just say, well, Jesus Jesus was sent, that shows God is loving. I mean, it's fine, but we can grow here. It's this love then which is poured out into our hearts from the Father, through the Ascended Son, by the Spirit, so that you might taste, so that you might partake of God's own love. 
And the ethical ramifications of this are sharp and they're profound. Right? John says this, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because this God is love. You know, it's, it's an implicit, it's an implied, a kind of tacit repudiation of the whole structure of the Trinitarian faith to mistreat a brother or a sister. Right? To fail to love is to kind of not know God, meaning not know the triune God. The love then between the Father and the Son, that's the fountain, that's the prototype for the love, all the love in creation. Now, there's, there's an anecdote. It's a famous anecdote. I don't think it's true. It's probably too good to check whether it's true or not, but it is humorous. And the anecdote is that Augustine was asked in the 4th century, what, what was God doing before he created the world? And the question assumes that God would be bored or lonely or twiddling his thumbs or wishing he had a kingdom to rule over. And the legend is that Augustine said something a bit snarky in reply. But of course, he and we know the answer. What was God doing before he created the world? He was just enjoying being God, being a communion of love from all eternity. He was infinitely satisfied in giving and receiving love. And thus he stood in need of nothing And that brings me to the second implication of Trinitarian life, namely creation. Now, we've said it, said it before, but it's only when we see God and we see him robustly as father and son in the unity of the Holy Spirit, it is only as Trinitarians that we can truly grasp this. Namely, that God did not in any fashion need to create Right? We've said that here a few times in this series. God did not in any fashion need to create. The creation of one world or a million worlds could not in any way add to his glory or his delight or his goodness and love as Father, Son, and Spirit. God is the fullness of love apart from, before, and above all things, all creatures. Now, this is important. I'm going to get to why it's important in a minute, but it is important. Some of you were in a Sunday school class that we had here I don't know, five or six years ago, where we went over Michael Reeves' little book, which I commend to you, called Delighting in the Trinity. It's an excellent book on this topic. But he has a little humorous heading over over, over one section of the book where he says a single person God might need to take out an ad that reads, single God, non-smoker, seeks attractive creation with a good sense of humor. His point was, if you just have God in general, if you don't have the triune God, that God has nothing to love. No one to love. Of course, to suggest this of the triune God would be blasphemous. So what does this mean? Well, it means the creation is superfluous, unnecessary. Now, I find that often people don't like this. Because we're egocentric creatures, and it means we're unnecessary. We kind of feel like God needs us. Or he needs America. You know? Or at least he's enhanced by us in some way. And we're perpetually correlating ourselves to God. Plus, without realizing, this is an instinctive thing, right? I take it, 
None of us have ever seen the world come into or go out of existence, right? So we're just instinctively, we kind of instinctively think the world is a permanent reality. It just is. Aristotle, for instance, thought the world was eternal. And by the way, for reasons that are not too bad, unless you're a Trinitarian. Here's how his logic went. Something like this. God is the first cause of everything. Well, we're fine with that. God is good. Sure. It's the nature of goodness to give itself, to spread itself out, to diffuse itself to another. That's good. Thus, the first cause must have always been causing the good world to be. So the argument is actually not that bad. It is the nature of goodness to give itself out, to diffuse itself. But since Aristotle's God is a unitary being, an impersonal cause, he or she or it has no other on which to lavish its goodness. And when this happens, creation becomes necessary. It becomes eternal. Right? You don't have to be a Darwinist. You can just be an Aristotelian to believe that the creation is eternal. But the triune God is love. And the essence of love is willing the good of the other. And so in the person of the Son, through the Spirit, the Father diffuses his goodness. He pours out his love. And this means not only is creation not eternal, it's not even necessary. And yet, right, yet, this goodness, this triune love, freely, that's where this word means a lot now. Freely, not from any necessity, not from any need or any defect, freely overflows, diffuses itself, and creates the world. I, I suggest this will change the way you look at things. The creation is first and foremost a Trinitarian act of God in his freedom. He creates, the Father creates by the word through the hovering spirit. We heard that in Genesis 1. We heard it again in Psalm 33. The, uh, the second century Bishop Irenaeus used to say, had this image of the Father doing all that he does through his two hands, the Son and the Spirit, the Word and the breath of God. So, creation is a free Trinitarian act. Secondly, this means the creation is an absolute gift. Now, I think we'd all assert that, but... I, I encourage you to reflect on it in the light of the Trinity, and then you'll really realize this is pure gift. This is a sign of the profusion of God's love poured out, calling all things into being. So creation is not necessary, but it is fitting. It's a diffusion of the divine beauty. And seeing this world has Seeing the world in this fashion has profound implications. I'm going to give you three of them in closing quickly. So, first is this. It means all is gift, including our own being. And this should do the next two things to us. right? This means this should be the wellspring of gratitude. Right? I don't know if you realize that we have a crisis of gratitude in the culture. And, and it's because this grammar has been lost. Right? 
If all you can do is find the faults of people and cultures and institutions and histories, then you're going to be unable to cultivate any gratitude. But once you root yourself in the triune love of the Trinity, which has diffused itself and poured out the good creation, even for all of its being marred and for all of our sin, there's still just rivers and rivers of material for gratitude. This is basic to Christian existence, which is why the table is basic, because the table is Eucharist, gratitude. We are not owed the creation. It does not belong to us. It is a triune gift. And as such, it is the wellspring for all our gratitude. Secondly, then, when we see the world this way, it strips us of the need to control. Right? What, what Augustine called the will or the lust for domination. I mean, we're contingent beings. We're utterly dependent beings who did not need to exist. We exist wholly because of God's gratuitous free love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That means we are fundamentally to be non-grasping creatures. So these things go together, right? Where there's a lack of gratitude, there's an increase in grasping. Where there's a wellspring of gratitude flowing up, there's much less grasping and need to manipulate or control or angle. And third, this reminds us that we are fundamentally all the way down, all the time, receptive beings. We receive. In him we live and move and have our being. We don't live or move from ourselves or by ourselves. And we are to receive then, this is the opposite of grasping, we are to receive then with open-handed receptivity. Open-handed receptivity, that's a fantastic disposition to have toward life. Open-handed receptivity. Non-grasping joy. The Trinity means all is gift, all is contingent, all is unnecessary, all is undeserved bounty. God is the giver, then, of all good gifts. And this is the source of your gratitude. He fills our open and receptive hands with his goodness. Glory to the triune God who is love, and whose love is overflowed in the free creation, the creation of all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. Amen.